Hello, and welcome to An Unknown Adventure. I'm your host, Kimberly Ann. My goal is to encourage people who want to live their lifelong dreams by looking at wins as well as failures in order to motivate you toward achieving your goals. I do this by talking to entrepreneurs, people who are pushing against societal norms, digital nomads, and anyone living an unconventional life. If you would be so kind as to do one thing for this podcast, which is solely my passion project, I'd be over the moon if you could eke out the time to review it, give it five stars on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on, or share it with someone in your life who will benefit from listening. These are the ways to make it visible to more people, and I am grateful for all of your support. I'm so excited about today's interview. It's with the amazing Nora Dunn of The Professional Hobo, and I was fortunate enough to meet Nora in person over a decade ago when she was just starting her full-time nomading journey, which lasted for 12 years. Nora mines some golden nuggets in this interview. She's candid about her ups and downs, the reaction she got when she made the decision to leave back before digital nomads and influencers were a thing, what it's like traveling with a partner versus traveling solo, how she traveled on $17,000 per year, how to stay safe as a solo female traveler, and so much freaking more. Even though I am doing my best to shorten these podcast episodes to 30 minutes, this one is too chock full of information. So it does run for an hour, but having listened to it several times myself, I know you will enjoy every minute. So let's go. Today, we are here with Nora Dunn, also known as the professional hobo, which I'm going to ask you about later. And I just wanted to start by saying that I met Nora in person in 2007, and I'm sure she doesn't remember, and that's totally fine. She was on the beginning of her of her 12-year-long nomad journey, and I'm sure you've met, you know, at this point, thousands and thousands of people, but we were able to reconnect, and I've just been so excited because I've been following not your entire trip, I'll be honest, but a lot, <laughs> a lot of it, and I've just been so, like, excited for you, and so you were my like my, uh, my, my, my mentor without being my, without knowing you were my mentor, you were like my, my, this is who I want to strive to be person. (laughs) So I was just like, so in awe of you when I met you and, and just the fact that you were like beginning your trip in Hawaii, or it was one of your first stops. And I'm like, you're doing what? Cause that was a long time (laughs) ago. So can you, now that, now that I've talked for way too long, can you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and your background? Please. Thank you. First of all, that was like the best introduction ever. Thank you so much. You've made my day. (laughs) And it is so amazing how we are able to connect and reconnect. I mean, thank goodness for the internet. Not only did it actually enable me to travel the world full time for 12 years and earn a living while doing so, but it also allowed us to do things like stay in touch over all these years. So I'll backtrack a little bit. Hi, everybody. 
My name is Nora Dunn, and I'm otherwise known as the professional hobo, which we will talk about later because it's funny. And basically what I did was I sold everything that I owned in 2006, which included a busy financial planning practice in order to chase down my dreams of being able to basically crack the cultural code of countries around the world. I really wanted to travel long-term immersively in depth. And I knew that in order to achieve that goal, I needed to not have an end date. Ironically though, I had no idea at the time where I would go, what I would do, how I would make this last, how I would earn money. And I even was open to the possibility that it might be something that I just had to get out of my system for a few months and that I would, you know, be back after that. So I'm as surprised as the next person to have discovered that I traveled full-time for 12 years. I did develop a location-independent career. Words like digital nomad and location-independent didn't even exist at the time. So I, I felt like I was the only person in the world to ever do this. <laughs> but of course I wasn't. But really the infrastructure to get into this kind of lifestyle didn't exist. So really I had to hit every bump on the learning curve. And I did it. And I did it not with any form of race whatsoever. Uh, but what I do now is I help other people do this much more gracefully and shortcut all the mistakes that I made and get set up so they can travel long-term and full-time way better than I ever did. <laughs> but even, and even so there's, we're all going to hit, still hit bumps. Just hopefully oh, it yeah. won't be as uh, dramatic or life threatening <laughs> as your bumps. Or <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny you should say life-threatening because yes, I have had a, a series, you know, of unrelated adventures and misadventures. I survived three natural disasters. I had three tropical diseases. I've been robbed twice. I was in one near fatal accident. So th there's definitely a lot of weird, oh, and I survived more breakups than I would ever care to admit to. So there, there's a lot of things to survive when you're in a lifestyle like this, but I think it's also kind of life. It's just that when it happens on the road, it happens in technicolor. And just before I have scared everybody away, I've also done some really amazing things. Like I inadvertently started an international NGO. When I was in Australia, I had a kangaroo literally fall in love with me. And he, he slept on my doorstep every night. And then every time I left the house, he followed me everywhere I went for six months. For six months, this kangaroo loved me. So the, weird things happen, right? I saved over $100,000 on accommodation expenses by getting it for free around the world in ways. And I, I just before anyone starts to think that I was staying in like a cardboard box on the roadside, I stayed in some of the most amazing places that had you even been able to rent such a place, I would never have been able to afford. So I do call myself a girl with champagne tastes and a beer drinker's budget. And I do pretty well by it. I love that. That's a great analogy. <laughs> and whenever I, I talk to people about what I want to do, they're like, well, you like the finer things in life, which to an extent, but not really. Like I'm really adaptable. Like I can go camping and sleep on the ground and it's not a big deal. And I can pee in a cup and who cares? I think what they mean is maybe long-term, but just because you're doing this or having this lifestyle does not mean that you are sleeping in a hostel, which you could be, but it doesn't mean every single night with 30 snoring men that you're sleeping in a hostel. You know, one of the first things that I learned in my travels uh, was that full-time travel is 
actually for me was significantly less expensive than it ever cost me to live in one place. Mm -hmm. And I only learned this when I started tracking my expenses because I wanted to be able to prove that full-time travel could be financially sustainable. And I stumbled into it because I started tracking my expenses. And at the end of the year, I went, oh my God, did I really just travel the world full-time for $17,000? My first two years on the road, 17 grand was what I spent. And I was with somebody else as well. So I was paying for a bunch of his expenses. So it, it was, it was ridiculous. Now I will also say that you could spend as much money as you want or as little money as you want. I mean, you could definitely spend a lot less than I did and you could spend a whole lot more. But what I think you're, you're getting at, I think you and I are very similar in the way that for me, it's all about making choices. It's all about spending consciously. So something that is important to me, I will prioritize and I will make sure I have the ability to have that experience, do that thing, own that stuff, eat that food, whatever it is. And conversely, I don't get sidetracked by all the little expenses that can add up and prevent me from doing the things I do want to do. So I've always said that I do live a, an inexpensive lifestyle, but when I want lobster, I eat lobster. I love that. I love lobster. <laughs> <laughs> But I love that example. And I, I stupidly do buy little things and they do add up. Mm -hmm. So it's a habit I'm trying to break. I was just looking, I was just telling you, I was looking at getting a GoPro camera, which I can't even pronounce. And the <laughs> accessories for the GoPro just now were on sale for $20 for an entire huge kit. So I bought that, but I don't mm -hmm. have the camera. <laughs> That's a classic example of putting the cart in front of the horse, my dear. <laughs> it really is. Yes, yes, it's an issue. So I want to ask about how everybody reacted to you when you said in 2006, I'm going to go travel the world. See ya. What were the reactions? You'd think that I would have gotten more negative reactions than I did. I think I was very lucky. And I think perhaps just the people in my life knew me well enough that they weren't utterly surprised. Like with regards to my parents, I say they raised me to be strong and independent and they got what they paid for. So, you know, they, they, they know me well enough to know that when I say I'm going to do something, there's not really any getting in my way in that sense. So they stood by and supported me. Although I will say 15 years later, my father admitted to me that he did not think much of this decision to go travel full-time. However, in retrospect, now seeing all the experiences that I've had, he's proud of me for having done it because these are the experiences. You can't take stuff with you when you go, as in when you leave this world, but those experiences will always be with me. So it was a really interesting moment to have 15 years later with my dad. I think probably the most negative responses I got, and it was one lady in particular I remember, I, I had to break the news to every single one of my clients in terms of selling my financial planning practice because I'd made this commitment to all of my clients that I would be there for them and I'd be managing their finances and doing this. We were in it together. And then suddenly I'm like, but maybe not. So I felt really bad in having to, you know, hundreds of people I had to say, I'm going to go travel now. But most of them said, you go girl. I wish I could do the same. And that's really the most common response I get. Oh man, I wish I could do that, but I know I never could. And the reasons people never think they can are wide and varying from, I like my home, I like my stuff, I have kids, I don't know what I would do, I, I can't earn money remotely. There's a lot of different reasons, some of which could be overcome if they really wanted to do it badly enough. Many of which really, let's get it right, could be overcome if they wanted to do it badly enough, but they don't. And that's okay. But the, the, the strangest response I got was, wow, I don't know why anybody would do that. 
<laughs> she was just flummoxed, totally flummoxed as to why I would sell everything to travel full time. So it really, if that's the worst that I got, I feel quite lucky. Yeah, you are quite lucky. I'll tell you right now. <laughs> you are you are very, very lucky. It was funny. I was sitting outside my clinic. So I this is my first week of retirement, as you know. So this is I'm in a very excited space. Yeah. Although so exciting. It seems a little anticlimactic in a weird way and bittersweet. But I was sitting outside. Does. Yeah, it always does. You're right. Outside my clinic the other day, my last day at work, and this woman, she was so funny. She was sitting on the bench outside, and she had her shoes off. And I, I said hi, and she looked at me like she goes, "I'm not homeless." And I said, "Well, <laughs> I said, well, I wouldn't care if you were." And so anyway, we started talking. She super warmed up really quickly, and asked me about myself. And, and I, I ended up saying that I was moving into a van. And so she looks at me and she goes, oh, so you're going to be homeless. <laughs> <laughs> and then by the end of the conversation, she wanted the, all the information about my band builders. And we ended up exchanging phone numbers and <laughs> texted. It was so funny. Well, homelessness, proverbial homelessness is the new black, I think. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I guess. And the difference between by choice and not by choice is huge. Totally. Just 100%. Yeah. So when you started traveling, I have a thousand million questions that I think people <laughs> would be interested in. So when you started traveling, you started traveling with your then partner. And how long did you guys travel together for? So my... My then boyfriend and I had been dating for about six months oh. when I did when I decided that I wanted to travel full time. So it was this really awkward period of time where it was like we'd been dating too long for me to just say, "I'm gonna go travel." Bye. That's the end of us. But I we really hadn't been dating long enough for me to say, "Want to come?" So anyway, I I opted with door number two. I was like, "Hey, I'm gonna go travel." want to come? <laughs> and so he did. He adopted my lifelong dream with the enthusiasm of a puppy dog. And uh, he also proceeded to sell everything he owned and to try to get his financial house in order, which was not as successful an endeavor as one might hope. And then we started traveling together. Now we lasted, <laughs> long story short, we lasted three years on the road or just shy of three years. I eventually left him in Australia with his Australian girlfriend. <laughs> because ultimately what had happened, it was a great learning experience. And it was fabulous to hit the road with somebody because it, it, it was like a sense of security, even though, <laughs> even though let's get it right, he was more of a liability than anything else. <laughs> he did provide me with some sense of security, ironically. The challenges were many, but the reason it didn't work for us is because we weren't on the same page. He didn't really know what he wanted. And as we, we learned this destination by destination, because he tried to plant roots everywhere we went. And I kept saying, no, 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 we keep going. So we spent six months in Hawaii and he was buying stuff. And he was, I'm like, don't buy stuff. We just sold everything. You're going to no. know. I, I think it was subconscious, right? It was just in his, and come by the time we hit Australia, A, he'd run out of money which was, I, we had uh, infrastructure in place where I said, when your money gets below X amount of dollars, you tell me and we find a plan B. And he blew through that and then some. So basically I felt stuck with him in Australia because it's like, oh, now I can't leave you on the other side of the world. So now, well, I guess I'm gonna have to support you until you can figure out what you're doing. 
ironically, we subsequently survived Australia's worst ever natural disaster to that date anyway, which were the Victorian bushfires. But it ended up being a, a blessing in its own very twisted way in that we became very instrumental in the relief work because we were literally in the middle of all the fires. So we were uh, part of setting up the, the relief warehouse where we were receiving and then distributing goods to fire survivors, which meant that one day we got a call from the uh, Canadian consulate and they said, oh, we're so glad we found you. <laughs> I was like, you were looking for me? <laughs> and they said, yes, we found you. This is great. Are you okay? Yeah, fine. Okay. Do you need money? No, no, no. And then I immediately went, no, I should have said yes. Because we were evacuated for three months and we were, no, sorry, two months. And we were living on you know, wherever we could live in that period of time in the town while we were doing all this relief work. And they said, is there anything we can do for you? I said, I'll tell you what you can do. You can give us working rights for the next year. And that allowed him to be able to get a job and recoup his finances, but also then to plant those roots super deep. And basically he just dug in and he was staying and that was that. And that was fine because then I could leave. And by that point, he'd already found somebody else anyway. So it worked well. But Long story short, traveling with somebody else, the lessons you learn are extraordinary. First of all, travel accelerates the natural progression of a relationship a hundredfold because you're in each other's pockets and space 24-7 and you're experiencing new environments and stressful situations and everything together all the time. And like I said, we traveled together for three years, but by the time we split up, it's like we'd been married for 20, so... It, it really ran its course, really, I think. We had a good marriage, sort of, but not really. <laughs> well, and you didn't have to actually get married and go through the divorce, so. Uh, yeah, exactly. So all in all, it worked out well for both of us. I'm not a pro-marriage person. Not that there's anything wrong with it, just not for me. So. Yeah. <laughs> Been there, done that. Yeah. Got the t-shirt. Right. <laughs> Burned the t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I have a thousand million questions, but I think what people would want to know is number one, how do you travel for a year on $17,000 or for less money than we would think? And I really do appreciate you had put, I don't know if you're still doing it, but you had put your yearly pie chart on your site every year, the professional hobo.com. And <laughs> that was awesome. You just keep doing that throughout this interview and <laughs> Uh, but but I really did look at those every year. And I was like, and one year you spent, like, in my opinion, a lot of money. And then I would look and see, oh, it was mostly flights because you had traveled a lot or, or whatever. And then I always, because other people do these pie charts too, not very many, not enough. But I always think, well, I want to see it broken down even more into like a spreadsheet minutia, which is what I'm going to do, which I, I've already done for my budgeting. But I, I do think I want to share stuff like that. I don't know yet. But anyway, I digress. The, the question is, how are you traveling for less money than you are living now in Canada? So there are a few ways that I learned to save extraordinary amounts of money while traveling. I'll break it down into three. So first of all, if you 
are proverbially homeless, as in you've sold everything and gotten rid of, of your home. You don't have a whole pile of expenses, rent or mortgage, but all the insurances and cars and there's so many accoutrements. There's so many bills and recurring expenses that we have that are now erased. So you're starting from square one. So now the two largest expenses that you will have when you travel full-time are accommodation, number one. And for the first 10 or so years, I got it mostly for free. And there are five different ways to get free accommodation, four of which I did. The five ways are volunteering, as in work exchange, hospitality exchanges, like couch surfing, house sitting, uh, living on boats, which I did for three months uh, without a night on land. It was pretty cool. Uh, and home exchanges, which if you have a home to exchange is a great way to get free accommodation. And I saved over $100,000 doing this over the first 10 years or so. And then in the last few years of my travels, I wasn't getting accommodation for free so much, more because I was renting places. Even prior to that, along the way, I did base myself in various destinations, like Australia as a perfect example. I spent about 18 months there on and off, about nine months in New Zealand, two years in the Caribbean, two years in Peru, nine months in Ecuador. And these were places where I had a home base of sorts. And in almost every case, it was also inexpensive. And there definitely are some tricks to the trade for finding inexpensive places to stay, even in expensive destinations. Mm -hmm. So certainly you can stay for a lot less than you would if you were comparing it to hotels. Again, everybody thinks travel is expensive because they're thinking vacations. I'm going to fly somewhere. I'm going to take a taxi from the airport to my hotel. I'm going to spend every day in a hotel and I'm going to spend every day doing touristy activities. And then I'm going to fly home and I'm going to need a vacation to recover from my vacation. But when full-time travel is a lifestyle, it's totally different and it takes on a totally different pace. One of the first things I tell people is slow down. If you were working full-time concurrent to traveling and there are so many there are millions now of remote workers that have because of the pandemic their jobs have been made remote and a lot of these people are thinking of taking their gigs on the road and the first thing i say is slow down if you think that a month is going to be long enough you're deluding yourself surprisingly enough do it for a while you know spend a week here and a week there a month there go for it but you will eventually burn out and you'll realize you're not getting work done unfortunately you can travel or you can work, but you can't really do the two simultaneously very effectively. So it is important to set a pace that is maintainable. And as such, you're just not spending as much money, right? As long as you're sitting in front of your computer working all day, then, you know, in the, in the remnants of your day, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to do the tasks of life, shopping, laundry, cooking, maybe go out for a meal. But it's not like you just spent $600 scuba diving. <laughs> you know, at least you don't do that every day, right? You might do that once a week or two weeks or once a month. The next most, and, and this actually feeds into the last expense that it's important to take a look at, which is transportation. So the fewer planes, trains, automobiles, tuk-tuks, buses, <laughs> rickshaws you're getting on, the less money you'll spend, which again, the slower you travel, the less you'll be spending on transportation. The other way that I have been able to apply my champagne tastes with my beer drinker's budget is that with the judicious use of frequent flyer miles, 
I'm able to consistently fly long haul in business class for less than the price of an economy ticket. So this explains why I've been able to live a champagne lifestyle for such a small amount of money is because if I'm getting my accommodation for free and my, my flights, even in business class, cost less than economy, the two biggest costs of travel are now cut dramatically down. And then the rest boils down to what we were talking about earlier about conscious spending and making sure that you are spending on the things that are important to you in life. Yes. Yes. I love that. That's super helpful. I know one house sitting website and I'll list that in the show notes. And I know there are many others and home exchange and all that. Just in case anyone wants to know, I wrote a book called How to Get Free Accommodation Around the World for less than the price of a cheeseburger. You too can save piles of cash on accommodation. It'll pay for itself in less than one night on the road. Okay, that's a really long title. And I bought that book and I have not read it. And that's... <laughs> but I bought it because I wanted to be supportive and I wanted to read it. Aww. I will read it. I will read it. <laughs> You're so funny. I'm like, that's a really long title. That is not the whole, that is not the title. <laughs> the, t- the title is just how to get free accommodation around the world. <laughs> okay. But I did kind of make it a run, run on sentence, didn't I? That was, it was pretty good. You did. You did. I was like, I got to put a pitch in here right now. Go. <laughs> That's awesome. And the book was like totally affordable. I can't remember how much it was, but it was totally affordable. Six so, ninety nine. Yeah, there you go. So when I met you, you were exchanging work for for free accommodation at the youth hostel. And well, I don't know why it's called a youth hostel. No, it's just a hostel. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, not a youth. Did you guys get your own room? Is that what happens at hostels when you do exchanges? I I wanted to ask you that. It varies dramatically. This was the only hostel exchange that I did. And it was unconventional to say the least in terms of what a work trade at a hostel would look like. I believe that nine times out of 10, if you're going to do a work exchange at a hostel, you're staying in a dorm. And the dorm that or the shared accommodation might be with the other hostel staff members, but you, you would be sharing a room. So now because I was with my boyfriend at the time, we shared a room. So in that sense, we had a private room and we shared a bathroom. It was definitely a cramped living circumstance, but we were pretty new to the whole travel scene and to the work trade thing. So we were up for a lot more than perhaps I would be today. And also I was still in the throes of developing my freelance writing career. So I was a little more flexible in trying to throw my business work into the cracks around it. And also let's get it right. I mean, what was I doing in trade for free accommodation there? I was painting murals around the property. I mean, it was great. He just handed me a tray of paints and said, hey, want to do something? And I was like, I've never painted before, but I'll try. And I ended up doing these massive, like to this day, they're all still there, including the entire front wall of the building. Wrapped around the corner is this gigantic mural that's a caricatured version of the Big Island of Hawaii. Wow. I learned I had a new, no, not really. I mean, a little bit here and there, but nothing like that before. I just, I guess I kind of learned I had a talent and I ran with it. Wow. (laughs) Wow. That is crazy. And how fun. Yeah. That's super awesome. And then I saw that you were doing a, and I didn't know how you got this gig in Australia, driving the van from the South to the North or the other way around and filming it for them. I was like, how'd you get that gig? 
Yeah, that was a really interesting. So this was before, I don't know if you remember that there was a huge worldwide campaign at, at one time called the best job in the world. And it was like this gig, they were campaigning around the world for this job, the best job in the world, you get to live on this Australian island, and we'll pay you a salary. And all you have to do is write and take photos about it. That was after what I did was the precursor to that. So I was, and I say this because there were a lot of kinks to get ironed out. <laughs> but what this was, was a, it was called the World Nomads Experience or something. And it was a, this gaudily painted van supplied by World Nomads, which is a travel insurance company, but also sponsored by Travelers Auto Barn, which is a, a camper van rental company and Lonely Planet and Nokia and all these people. So basically the gig was we had six weeks to drive the van wherever we wanted. So we picked it up in Brisbane and we drove it down to Melbourne. Okay. And the greatest lesson that I learned about Australia in that time. Now, I, I don't know why the internet existed. I, maybe I just didn't do enough research, but I was living at the hostel at the time when I got this gig and started researching it. And I would talk to Australians and I'd be like, where, where to drive? What's the weather like? And no one gave me a solid answer. They're like, well, it's not hot all the time everywhere, but sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't. And I'm like, what? That's the wishy-washiest of what I realized. They were right. There are some parts of Australia that are consistently hot. It's either hot or hotter. Those are the two seasons. There are other parts of Australia that experience four seasons in a day. There are parts of Australia that experience winter, real true winter. You can ski in Australia. And we happened to be there at the onset of winter. And the route that we chose was unfortunate in that we almost froze to death because we weren't prepared for the weather to be as cold as it was and we'd never been in a camper van which if it's not insulated is not very warm when the no. weather is cold so i don't know if you've insulated your van yes. but i'm telling you okay it's insulated oh yeah oh hell yeah oh. it's insulated <laughs> oh god i still i mean I, I still shiver when i think about those nights and broken believe, hill in particular i can't believe they would give you a van that wasn't insulated that's crazy well like i said earlier there were many kinks to be ironed out with this program <laughs> including the deliverables, including like what they delivered to me and what I was supposed to deliver in exchange for all of this very, very nebulous at best. So, <laughs> but it was fun. It was my first sponsored gig and it was certainly the beginning of what became a whole industry really of sponsored gigs. And that was the beginning of the influencer industry, I guess. Yeah. The very, very beginning of all of that. Hi, just a quick break. If you're finding value in these podcast episodes, I would be so grateful if you could leave a review, if you could give it five stars, or if you could share it with a friend that you think would benefit from listening to it. And that's what helps this get seen by others who may find value in AUA. And also it helps the algorithm so more people can see the podcast. Since this is completely a labor of love, I would love it if you would share that love with others. Thank you. And now back to the show. I started a blog, The Professional Hobo, right? But I started it as a joke. Yes. <laughs> um, it was a joke. First of all, the whole name was, uh, was I was making fun of myself by calling myself yes. a professional hobo. Yes. Okay. Um, That's my question. Okay. There we go. Okay. Yes. Let's, let's get into that. Yes. Go. <laughs> It it happened because the first thing that, that we did when we left Toronto is we took the train across Canada and I, I 
am a Rotarian, so I would visit Rotary clubs around the world. And these are very business-minded people, not used to my life and lifestyle. What's the first thing you do when you meet somebody new? Was one of the first questions, oh, what do you do? And I was like, mm, I don't really know what I do right now, but I'm trying to figure it out. So I was like, I'm, I'm homeless, but I don't want to just say I'm homeless. So right. I was like, I'm, I'm a professional hobo. You know, like I make hobo look good. <laughs> <laughs> And then it, 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 I mean, it had so many other forms of poetry as time went on, you know, eventually once I, I did develop a brand and, and helping people travel full-time in a financially sustainable way. And I was the finance of travel girl. There's the, that whole professional edge to it. And then there was a poetry to the whole hobo title in that it's a, it was a poetic take on the the hobos of the, the 1930s who were migrant workers who traveled from destination to destination by train. And I happened to be a massive, crazy over-the-top train nut. I've done some of the world's longest, fastest, slowest, craziest train journeys. So there was that as well. So truly poetic. But when I started this whole thing, this blog, it was just a glorified online journal. That's all blogs were in 2006, yeah. really. There was no yeah. business to it. Yeah. And I certainly wasn't, I, you know, I'm going to be influencing anybody. I mean, come on, this is well, just me writing it. I, I just did it for me. You I, and I didn't even need to. It was great. <laughs> I just met you and yes, maybe inspired. I inspired you. Yeah. I don't think I influenced you. Yeah, you did. <laughs> but eventually there, a travel blogging industry did grow up and around me. And because I was one of the first, I got caught up in the leading edge of yeah. this wave, which was really fantastic before the wave broke and took me with it. But for the first while, it was great. I was surfing it like nobody's yeah. business. Yeah. And you were keeping up with it, which is another thing about travel blogging or any kind of blogging is consistency. Yes, absolutely. And I did it for the love of it. I love writing. I'm very good at it. And I was developing a professional career as a freelance writer. So mm -hmm. this really just went hand in hand with it. Right. Yes. Okay. Another question is, how do you choose your next destination while you were traveling? It's a great question in that... I typically never chose my destination. I let my destination choose me. In that, I could look at a world map and where do you want to go, Nora? Uh, everywhere. So what I did was <laughs> I went I went with an opportunity. And because I was focused on, on these various free accommodation gigs, whether it be volunteering or house sitting or living on boats or even meeting people, they would invite me to stay with them. So eventually it would just be a, a gig would come to me. Uh, I would get an opportunity or I would get accepted for something or somebody would give me an invitation and that would be enough for me to hop on the next plane, train, automobile, tuk-tuk, rickshaw, bicycle, <laughs> whatever it was that I was going to take to get from A to B. So the, it, there was, it was great uh, poetry in that. It made, also made it very, like I didn't have to spend a lot of time going, ooh, where am I going to go? And, you know, then putting my finger on a destination, then having to research the destination and figure out how to get there and figure out where to stay when I'm there and figure out what to do while I'm there. Because really, most of the time, my accommodation was sorted. So that was, I didn't have to worry about where to stay and, and all that. And then once I arrived at that accommodation, the rest of the infrastructure worked its way because I was staying with locals who would show me the area or tell me what to do or how to do it. So it all just flowed very naturally. Now that I'm not traveling full time anymore, most of my destinations still choose me in, in random ways, but I do also choose destinations. So for example, on my bucket list is uh, in a bizarre way, Slovenia 
Mm. Most, most people go, huh? But Slovenia is on my list because I learned of a newly opened trail called the Juliana Trail. And it's a town to town walking route that you can do. And I've always wanted to do a long distance through hike, but I've never wanted to do the whole camping part of it because I couldn't, yep. I just, I don't want to schlep a bunch of camping gear. But this is town to town. So it's great. You know, I walk for four or five hours. I get to a new town. If I like the place, I stay for a while. If I'm ready to move on, I go to the next town. It's another four to five hour walk. So I feel like this would be a great way to experience the country. So, you know, happenstance allowed me to discover this and now I will plan a trip around it. Yeah, I love that. I talked to the guy that I'm sure you've heard him in Clubhouse, Victor Prince, about Mm -hmm. the Camino. He also is looking only for town to town hikes. And there's one in Scotland that a friend of mine did and loved. And then I met this woman in, she lives in Dresden and she did one in Southern Italy from, I think it was Rome to Capri, I think. And I will say these kinds of travel adventures are going to be new to me. Part of the reason is I heard about the Camino de Santiago like 20 years ago, like a long time ago. When I was traveling full-time though, I couldn't figure out in my head anyway, how to make this work because everything I owned fit into either a suitcase or a, or a backpack. For two years, I traveled with carry-on luggage only, but the, most of the rest of the time, it was a checked bag. And I'm like, I, I can't roll this along with me right. while I'm hiking the Camino. And also, because I was working the whole time, the first thing I thought was, how can I walk in the rain with my laptop? I just couldn't figure out these things in my head. But mostly it was the weight of all of my belongings, literally and figuratively, that prevented me from doing this. Now that I have a home base, different kinds of travel opportunities are coming to me, like the trail, because I could just pack for that and I can pack light and it's easy and I don't even have to think about it. Right. Or if you have, I have several friends that live in Europe, I could leave my bag with them and just something like that. And then did you ever do the Shungun hop? Or did, did it never matter? I, I, the Schengen hop as in three months in, three months out. Mm-hmm. I, I did the Schengen thing, but I didn't, I don't think I did a specifically spending three months out of it to, to go back in three months later. I did do, interestingly enough, so one of the first places I went when I was leaving Australia, I planned out this trip because initially it was just a test run. My boyfriend was like, don't, you know, I, cause he had his job and I'm like, I gotta go travel for a while. I'm just, I'm just going to go. I'm going to go somewhere for five months and I'll come back. He's like, you'll come back, right? Yeah, I'll come back. No worries. But you'll come back, right? Yeah, I'll come back. Two weeks, two weeks later, he found his girlfriend. But anyway. Oh my God. <laughs> I hope he doesn't listen to this. Because he knew you didn't want to come back. That's why. (laughs) No, he just didn't want to be alone. And that's okay. Really and truly, I harbor no ill feelings. I I say this like I'm I'm bitter, but I'm not. I just think it's kind of funny to be truthful. But anyway, so I was planning this trip from Australia and I couldn't figure out the Schengen thing. But I bounced around all these Schengen countries for a while because at the time it was not... It went again. I mean, the internet existed. I don't know what my problem was, but I think things just weren't really as easy to find and things weren't clear. Like you say, they weren't well-defined. So what I realized quickly after three months in the Schengen zone, I had to get out of it. So I hopped over to the UK and then I spent my remaining few months in the UK. 
There was this thing actually as a tangent, which you can keep in it or not as you wish. There was this thing I did in Spain, which was so cool. It, it was called Vontown, but there's a few programs that do this in Europe. I wrote an article about it. If you try hard enough, you can find it on my site, but <laughs> maybe I'll give you a link for the show notes. But basically it is a, a conversational English program whereby locals or rather their companies generally pay to send them to these retreats where there's an equal number of locals and English speakers from around the world. The English speakers have their accommodation and meals all paid for uh, because their job is to is to talk to these people. There's certainly a format to the program. You're paired up with different people and then you have activities and, and whatnot. But it really is just a chance to sit and talk to a whole bunch of people that you never would have had any chance of meeting otherwise. So for me, it was in Spain. So I was meeting Spaniards from all over Spain, but I was also meeting Anglos from all over the world. And in two weeks of volunteering at this program, where again, my accommodation and all my expenses were paid for, I met enough people to stay for the remaining five months in Europe. Wow. So again, this was an experience. I traveled all over Western Europe and the UK. I mean, this should have been really expensive, but it wasn't because I started off by volunteering and then I just did a whole bunch of hospitality exchanges. Wow. That's amazing. So anyway, those programs do exist. They're now in Spain and Poland and the Czech Republic and Germany. So there are a few around where you can do this. And it, it's really a fabulous, fabulous cultural exchange. Yeah. I mean, you can't work during those, that time as much. No. But, yeah. But that's cool. And is it a shared, like open space shared with 700 people in your room that you're sleeping the one that I did, I was a private room. My understanding is it depends on the program. I do have a friend who did one in Poland, I believe. And there, that program either had shared accommodation, but when you share it with one other person, so it's not two 700 in a room, like you say, <laughs> but they, they do also have private room options. So I guess it depends on the program. Yeah. Because I am very sensitive sleeper. That's why I always yeah, ask I about me that. Too. And when I travel and have to stay in a youth hostel, I'm almost always except for twice, I think, have my own room. You know, yeah. pay, the, pay the extra $5 for my, for my own room. <laughs> you know what, though? I find it's, it's a lot more than $5 these days to, to oh. get your own private room in a hostel. I mean, I'm the same way. I like the hostel environment. I like the ability to meet people and the community atmosphere, but I prefer my own sleeping space. But in some cases, it all depends on the hostel and the location. The cost of a private room can be comparable to a hotel. Oh, then you just stay in a hotel. That's silly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, different strokes for different folks because yet the hotel can be very nice. And again, a frequent flower mile junkie that I am, I like to know I can accumulate points. But again, there is something to be said for the community environment of a hostel. So for some people, they don't mind paying as much as a hotel for a private room in a hostel if they know it's going to allow them to meet other travelers. Yeah, that's true. And that's happened to me in every hostel. Yeah. You met me. See, met if you'd you. stayed in a hotel, you never would have met me. True. That is true. <laughs> and then when I went to Hawaii, I stayed in the hostel there and I met these two women and we traveled through every single day, like went to beaches. And, yeah. I think it's because I was the only one with the car. I'm pretty sure that's <laughs> <laughs> so they were my they were my best friends for those, you know, <laughs> but who knows? And I've met so many people. Also staying like at Airbnbs where there's more than one person and we meet around the dinner table 
Mm-hmm. This one woman in particular in New York always had like four people and I'm still friends with some of the people that I met there. And then they stay, they say, oh, if you ever come to one of them is Australian, if you ever come to Australia, stay with me or whatever. So there are so many ways. It's amazing. So what would you tell people that are scared to make the plunge? What advice do you give people? You know, it's so funny. I've listened to so many interviews where this is a common question. And the, the, the immediate answer that people say is just do it. Just get out there and do it. And yeah, that's true. But you know what? I'm a pragmatist. Is that a word? Pragmatist. All right. Great. That's a word. Yeah. I'm a pragmatist in that. Yeah. There is a certain amount of, you know, you can only test the water so much before you jump in. However, it is possible. If you're curious about this lifestyle, do a test trip, go away for a few months. See how it feels. See if you like the, you know, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, if you're working remotely, there is going to be an inherent struggle for work-life balance. It it comes with the territory. Some people manage well with that. Other people, not so much. So that's going to be something to, to figure out whether or not that's your speed. And also to figure out whether or not you just really like the travel lifestyle. For some people, a few months is all they need to figure out, oh, you know what? I really like the fact that I had a home to return to. Mm-hmm. And then they decide to design their life in a different way that will allow them to maintain their home base and take trips of perhaps a few months or beyond but to maintain that home base. Whereas other people will do those few months and say, oh man, I really just wanted to keep going. I just wanted to, to cut the tether of the home base. Great, do that, but start off with a test trip. There's very little cost, if you will, like proverbially speaking, to doing the test trip, but the benefits, the return on investment can be extraordinary. Right, well, and the biggest cost monetarily is, main t- is paying rent at your house. Sure, absolutely. And there are solutions to that as well, right? You could do a home exchange. Right. So then that way you would be getting free accommodation and someone, or you could sublet, or you could, there's a lot of different ways that you could try to subsidize that. And that's also why I say, just go for a few months. Yeah, it's going to cost you the extra to maintain your home base plus pay your travel expenses, but better to do that than to sell everything because when you sell everything, you're guaranteed to take a loss on so much stuff and then realize that it's not for you. Like, oh, that sucks. I hate it. I want to go home. I have no home to go home to. Yeah, exactly. That's really not an easy thing to come to terms with. And when I I would leave, like my last long trip was a six-week trip to Europe and I have a dog, so I just had Chester's house sitters come and a wonderful couple came and, and watched the dog for six weeks. And yes, I still had to pay rent and utilities, but at least I didn't have to pay dog sitter, which was it's which is so huge, huge. It's like rent yeah. again. So yeah, yeah, exactly. So I did a house sitting gig in uh, just a quick tangent. Yeah, yeah. I did a house sitting gig in the UK. It was my first house sitting gig and I was taking care of three big dogs and it was a large house in Hampshire. And, and they warned me that it was going to be a lot of work. They said, do you know, there's three big dogs. Are you cool doing this on your own? And in fact, actually, I, it was an opportunity for my mom to fly over and Aww. join me. So we had that time together. It was really nice. But man, I started doing some math and I thought if these guys were paying to kennel three big dogs, and then paying somebody else to come in and take care of the gardens and then making sure that a, a friend or somebody could you know collect the mail and whatnot and and even so there's no security presence around the property all the time man they would have spent a lot of money and instead they got it for free with a house sitter who was oh, yeah. more than happy to travel to a new area of the world and stay there for free yep so it's uh, house sitting it really is a great deal for everybody oh it's amazing it's just sometimes it's hard to get the gigs and sometimes it's a lot of work Yes. But, you know, go back and forth and go back and forth. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Was this worth yeah. it? 
in my book, How to Get Free Accommodation Around the World, I provide cautionary advice of how to do your due diligence and make sure that you get the house sitting gig that is optimal for you. you. That was such a great commercial. Oh, my God. That was perfect. You should have been on video for that. I mean, (laughs) And then I I know we have to wrap up, but uh, I just wanted to ask you uh, a question about solo female travel and how you feel about it, how you felt about traveling in specific countries like Ecuador as a woman alone. Great question and a common concern for any aspiring solo female travelers. So I'm glad that you brought it up because more than half of the time that I spent traveling full-time was alone. And there's two things that I can say. First of all, apply street sense the same way that you would at home. Well, maybe you wouldn't so much at home. I don't know. But street sense is important, right? So if you don't know what that means, if you grew up rurally or in some area where you're maybe unfamiliar with the etiquette of being in a new environment, in a city, in a place where you don't know who is around you at any given time, read up on that, figure that out, because there definitely are ways to carry yourself, ways to be. There's certain rules of conduct like don't ever drink a drink that you haven't seen poured and don't ever leave it unattended. And you bring up Ecuador. It's a perfect example because I was actually with a woman who had her drink spiked and I had to take care of her and make sure that she got back to where she was living at the time. So that's important. Street sense. And I have a video and articles and stuff about all that kind of stuff. So I'll I'll give you some links for the show notes that will help women. The second thing is ask a local at your destination. Ask them what you need to do in order to be safe. Because for them, and as by way of example, I was in Bogota, Colombia. So obviously, you know, much of the world can remember the 80s and uh, that Colombia was perhaps not a safe destination to go to. So this was kind of in, in the back of my head, in the subtext. When I arrived to Bogota, I was staying with a family and I said to the woman, is there anything I need to do here to stay safe? Like, can I go walking at night? And she looked at me like I was from the moon. And she said, of course you can go walking at night. I've raised my children in this neighborhood. They go out all the time. I I don't even know what you're talking about. (laughs) And then she launched into the standard protocol in Colombia or in Bogota anyway, for how to take a taxi. And it involved a whole bunch of steps that I'd never even thought of to avoid basically getting kidnapped. You take your phone out when you're getting into the taxi, the license plate number of the taxi and the driver license number that's usually somewhere in the back seat. You pull out your phone and you loudly, with an earshot of the driver, call a friend and say, hi, I'm hopping into this taxi. This is the plate number. This is the driver number. I'll see you in 20 minutes or however long it takes you to get to your destination. So that way the driver now knows you're accountable to getting somewhere and that somebody knows what their information is. So they're not going to do anything shady, which could also just include your driving laps around the city to take longer than necessary. But I'd never heard of this. And the other thing too, is if you don't have an aid to call, you just pretend. Right. Right. So I learned that by asking a local. Yeah. They'll also be able to tell you of common scams. They might say, oh, well, be careful about going to this square because there's lots of pickpockets there. Great. Now I know and I'm armed with information. In another place in Panama, a local told me to, oh, beware of going to the restaurants on this particular strip. There are people who are going to try to sell you extra stuff and they're going to pretend like it's part of the menu or that they're friends of yours. But then at the end, you're going to get like a $200 bill. So definitely just rely on the and learn from the locals for every destination. Good. Yeah. Good. That's great. And you felt safe most places? Yes. Okay. Yep. 
and and other than your near death experience is <laughs> that an accident yeah. It was an accident. I was I was living in Grenada in the Caribbean at the time and I was with my then partner. We were on the scooter and I was on the back and he was driving and we got hit head on by an SUV. Oh my god. Yeah, it was it was That's something. It was an adventure. No, it was not pretty in any way. But I got lucky because I was catapulted and then basically broke a very long fall with my head, which was unfortunate. But had I been maybe three inches to the left, I wouldn't be here to tell the story. Wow. So and and my partner at the time was much less lucky because he basically got crushed by the handlebars. So yeah, he fractured his hip and dislocated his femur and spent the next month in a hospital in some medieval form of traction that was really quite horrific. But at least he still had his leg. Yes, absolutely. So there you go. Silver linings. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> no, it's still attached. This was a plus. I don't know why I always think in terms of limb losing. I don't know why. It's just I know. I was like, wow, I'd never even thought of that. But yeah, absolutely. That is yeah, a, you know. I go there. I always go there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so number one, is there anything that I haven't asked that you want to say? I mean, I always have something to say, but I feel like we did pretty good today. So okay, we can call it. You always have something important to say. Not, you just don't always just have something to say. So, Well, I don't know. You know, importance is subjective. <laughs> well, I think it's important. So what, would you, it's true. so what would you tell your 12-year-old self if you could go back in time and give your younger self, whatever age, actually, some advice? You know, it was in around that age, it was around nine years old, that actually this dream of mine to travel the world long term and in this immersive way was hatched. I was about nine years old and I, I, I remember specifically this moment where I was seeing a documentary about Europe and I, I didn't know the language or the architecture or the, the people or the food or anything. And I was like, oh, how do the children play? I want to know how the children play. And that, that dream, that sentiment grew up with me, you know, and I was probably about 13 years old when I bought, I, I just thought, I'm going to backpack around the world after high school. I'm going to do that. Because at that point, I'd heard about the whole gap year idea. And I was like, I'm going to do that. So I saved my pennies and I bought this backpack. I was 13 years old. I bought this backpack with the intention of doing this gap year trip. And the backpack, in retrospect, was completely inappropriate. Right. right. But of course. <laughs> it was all I could afford at the time. And it helped me keep the dream alive. Yeah. Life got in the way. Life happens while you're busy making plans. And I didn't take the gap year trip. And instead, I, I launched from one interesting career opportunity into another, into another. And it really wasn't until I turned 30 that I had this reckoning where I realized that the, the sort of life and lifestyle I wanted, I was unprepared to wait for retirement to have that experience. So if I take that whole knowing what I know now and what I've experienced now, and I go back to my nine-year-old self, I don't know that I would tell her to do anything different. I Perhaps I would just say, be patient and don't lose the dream. Yeah. And because it will, it will come to fruition. If you hang on to that thought and that dream, it will happen, but it may not happen in the way you expect it to. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Aw. Well, thank you. I want to keep talking to you for like another seven hours, but I won't. So <laughs> we could do it. We could do a chapter two at some point. That's, yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise, I mean, that's just not fair to you. So tell people where they can find you. I know you're on YouTube and your blog and website and pot no no podcast yet no, podcast. no that's in the be works. listening to it okay along with everything else okay oh and your classes so, and your classes yeah 
Yes. Yeah. So my online home is theprofessionalhobo.com. <laughs> and from there, you can generally get to everywhere else that I am. But there's certainly a few things that I would like to um, alert people to that they may be interested in, which would be, I do have an awesome interview series where I speak with ordinary people who have extraordinary travel lifestyles and remote careers. So that can be found on YouTube. Yeah, it's really uh, good. <laughs> slash Nora Dunn. So you can find me there. I also, on my website, you will immediately see links to my travel lifestyle series, which are basically a series of really informative, deep, long guides that really help familiarize you with the ins and outs of the travel lifestyle and traveling in a financially sustainable way. But there's like 800 different articles on my site. So if you are interested in this lifestyle, I am in the process right now of rolling out. I've been doing consulting privately and quietly for seven years. I'm going public now. So I'm in the process of now offering consultations to people who want to hit the road long-term and, and or full-time. And I've done and it I and it was super helpful. Yay! <laughs> there's my there's the testimony, everybody. I offer a free 15 minute consult so you can we can figure out whether or not it's going to work out well for us. And if I can help you in the 15 minutes, great. But generally speaking, people realize it's a way bigger, uh, heftier job. And basically, what I do is I give people confidence to hit the road to travel long term, knowing that absolutely everything is arranged in the best possible way for them, and that can be logistic, financial, emotional, and beyond. And safety, you helped me with the whole safety aspect of what if you lose your passport and how to you know, how to keep safe with your items, like, you know, yeah. credit card and, and all that kind of stuff. So. There's so much. There's so much. I really, know. if you, we can go, I love doing these consults because they can go in a million different directions and I'm always curious to see where it goes. Yeah, and I'm thinking, oh God, I need to set up another one because now I have more questions. So I will. <laughs> and then what about your the classes that you're going to be rolling out? You know what? <laughs> I am an ambitious lady and I got a lot of things on the go, but I don't have anything to talk about yet with regards okay. to online courses. I am in the process of designing online courses and I am in the process of starting a podcast, but until there are about 50 hours in a day, uh, <laughs> I'm not, not quite there. Happen. That's going <laughs> to tell you right now that will never happen. <laughs> and you do you know it could happen. <laughs> exactly. It could happen. Right. Okay. But uh, yeah. Think something with the sun and I don't know, some something <laughs> I don't understand. There's the something planet. I don't know these rules of physics and no, ah, I don't know. But you're on constricted. every day and you're working every day and you're so how are you managing your time? <laughs> Well, it's as much a work in progress while traveling full time as it is while living in a pandemic. Yeah. So yeah. there are always things to do. Generally, I'm easily prone to burning out. So I have to be very careful about arranging my time. And for the last 15 months, I've been isolated in my apartment in Toronto. And this is this was only meant to be a place that I was just going to come and go from. But here I am, 15 months. I've never spent 15 months in one place, like in my entire life, yeah, without nice. traveling somewhere. Yeah. So this has been weird, but we'll call it a learning experience. Yeah. And what's your next trip? Don't know yet, but I am supposed to speak at a conference in Connecticut in September. So if I am able to, Canada's vaccination rollout program has been considerably different <laughs> than oh. the States. So if yeah. I am able to be fully vaccinated by that point, then I may book that trip, but we will see. Right now, the border is still closed between oh, Canada wow. and the States. Although Canadians can travel to the States, the, the Canadian border is pretty, pretty yeah. tightly shut. So getting back into Canada would be a pain in the neck. So until that opens and until yeah. vaccination policies are a lot easier, I'm not really considering international travel. 
yeah, that makes sense. Well, I hope that opens up soon. I hope the vaccine is more available soon. That's mm-hmm. crazy. We'll get there. We'll yeah, get there. I know. I know. Well, and you had less cases than us too. So yeah, so. but Toronto has had the longest lockdown in the world. Oh, so my. we've been in a state of emergency now for seven solid months, state of emergency. Oh, wow. We're in our eighth month. And that says nothing of the first six months of lockdown as well. Basically, between the start of the pandemic and now, we had about two months in Toronto where we could do some things. That's it. Oh, that's so good. it's been really difficult, really difficult. Yeah, that's but hey, what to do, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> work, apparently. <laughs> yeah, work. Yeah, you get all your work done. Okay, well, I don't want exactly. to keep keeping you. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your time. I adore you. Feeling is mutual. I am excited to follow you through your journey of becoming a van lifer. This is so exciting. And yeah, that's you're following me and I'm following you. Isn't this great? Yeah. Yeah. It's super fun. It's super fun. And you know, I'll see you on Clubhouse and I'll see you and I'll see you for our next consult, which I will book. So excellent. Okay. All right. Well, have a fantastic day. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the invite. And it's been a real pleasure. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe, leave a five-star rating or review, or share it with a friend who would find value from this episode. You can find more information about AUA at anunknownadventure.com. I do try to leave extensive show notes here under the podcast and on the website. The show notes include links to everything that's been discussed here today, plus shortened transcripts for some guests, their bios, and photo. My main goal is to encourage you to achieve your dreams. So if you have any questions, please DM me on Instagram at an unknown adventure. And whether you do or you don't, following me there would be amazing. Remember to keep dreaming big because your adventure awaits and I would love to hear about it. Thanks so much and have a great day.